0: What we often tell parents is that if a person who's younger than 18 is asking their parents to support them on this, we see it as an invitation to ask the parents to to join them, that they want to do this together with them. They don't want to turn 18, move out, and then have to navigate this alone.
1: I could and probably will do more episodes on medical supports for transition. The field continues to evolve, and perhaps one day we'll look back on this and think, whoa, it was wildly hard back then, why did we make it so hard? At least I hope someday we'll be able to find this to be not a scary, terrifying thing, but rather find our way back to rejoicing our children's understanding of who they are and how they will navigate life. We're going to dive a little deeper today into the world of medical supports for transition. In our first medical episode, we introduced endocrinology, and talked mostly about Puberty Suppression Medication, or the pause button. Today, we're leveling up and talking about Hormone Replacement Therapy, or HRT. Hormone Therapy. Testosterone. Estrogen. I've seen these words throw so much tension and chaos into families. A child is begging for it, and the parents are giving the full-on deer-in-the-headlights look. Which makes perfect sense, because most of the time, the child has been longing for them, Long before they ever came out. And then teens, being so good at timing, tend to drop this request on their parents who are still wrapping their heads around what transgender even means. You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host, Mackenzie Dunham. Now, of course, this isn't always the story, every story is different. However, this part of the story is pretty common. And what I've found is that because there's so much misinformation about gender and transition, it is really easy to get lost in the BS if you just look online. I've also found that most parents' fears ease a bit after they learn more about what hormones do and don't do, as well as when they actually go to the endocrinologist and recognize that their child is receiving really high-quality, comprehensive, multidisciplinary support. Then they develop relationships with their child's team. They feel less alone. They feel more confident about their decisions, and they see their child flourish. So, today, to answer some of the most foundational questions parents regularly ask about hormone therapy, I've wrangled the help of Dr. Kara Connolly. Dr. Connolly provides care for patients with a wide variety of endocrinology disorders. She's the medical director for the Dornbecker Gender Clinic which provides comprehensive medical care for transgender and gender diverse children and adolescents under the umbrella of the OHSU transgender health program. She's involved in local and national research and advocacy efforts and is passionate about reducing barriers to care for gender diverse youth. Before we get started, I just need to remind you again to take a breath and give yourself permission to stop multitasking so that you can be present and take in this information. Ready? Okay. So when a kid reaches out to OHSU, um, which I think it's appropriate to say is every gender clinic's process looks a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. So when they reach out to OHSU, what do they what can they anticipate being the process and what's gonna happen?
0: Yeah, so the Dornbecker Gender Clinic is the pediatric and youth focused piece of the OHSU transgender health program where sure. we see all of our youth, um uh, mostly up until age 18 for new patients establishing care, but we take care of many of our patients through young adulthood. Um so when we get a referral from usually the primary care provider, our social work our social worker um does a kind of triage of the referrals, and then outreach to the families to schedule an intake phone call. And then during that intake phone call, um, it's really focused on getting to know who the young person is, what their um, support system looks like, um, what they're looking for specifically, what, su- what supports they have, what resources they may need, um, and then helping the, to them to get connected with the resources that they need. And then using an algorithm to help to triage for urgency to get scheduled into our clinic. Um, and then we we really call that, that intake the first visit with our program, because that's when they're becoming a patient of ours. And we make sure that they know that then we're available to help them get connected with resources and get what they need even before the first medical appointment, which is when I meet them. Sometimes... Um, Patients or families may benefit from meeting with our team psychologist um, before that medical visit. So Jess can help to help families make the decision about that. Um, it's not required. It's just an, an, a, an additional resource that they can access before the medical appointment. Um, and then they, when they come in for the first or come in to our virtual world, right now for the first medical <laughs> right. visit, um, which hopefully at some point we will be back in person, but we hope to be able to continue to also offer virtual visits um, in addition to in-person visits just to improve access to to care for those families who live outside of the Portland metro area. Yeah. Um, and in the first uh, medical appointment, we really focus on um, medical history, family history, discussing any potential risk factors for different treatments, um, and then really understanding, again, what the youth and um, family is looking for and what information they want specifically. And then we start talking about the different paths that they may want to pursue um, in terms of their care and steps forward.
1: Okay. So what kinds of different paths could a kid or a family take on this journey?
0: Yeah. So um, when I, with every single patient that I meet, before we start talking about any medical, any kind of medical interventions, um, we, we do something that my team calls level setting in the beginning. And really mm-hmm. what the way that I explain it is helping families make to make sure that we're all on the same page about different words and terms that we're using and that we will be using. And a lot of times there are terms and and phrases that everyone's really familiar with, but there are many times when this is, a lot of this is still really new to the caregivers. And so I think that it can be beneficial for them to understand this. And a lot of times the young person is looking at us like, thank you for, and for reinforcing what I've been trying to tell them for so long and helping to explain that in, in different words. But what I explain is that um, when we're talking about someone's sex, we're referring to the sex that's assigned to them at birth. That's usually based on the appearance of the genitals when somebody is born. And we know that gender identity is separate from someone's sex that they're assigned at birth and is very unique to that individual. Only that person can say what their identity is. And um, there's an infinite number of ways that somebody may experience their identity, their gender, um maybe male, maybe female, maybe neither or somewhere in between. And again, it's really that person, that individual's um it's up to them to be able to say what their identity is. And then when we're when we're talking about gender expression, we're referring to the way that somebody um chooses to share their gender identity with the rest of the world. This may be in the na- in the way of name, pronouns, hairstyle, clothing, etc. Um, and that's also unique to the individual. There's no expected way, one way that's, that, somebody, that we expect somebody to express any particular gender. And then as we all know, um, sexual orientation, which is the genders that we're attracted to, is something that's completely separate from gender mm-hmm. identity. Um, And so some people whose gender identity does not match the sex, the sex that's assigned to them at birth may want to pursue something that we often refer to as a, quote, transition. Um, But we, we recognize that that's can seem, it's a kind of a problematic term, because it almost implies that somebody is going from. Um, a starting point and an ending point, or from a starting point to an ending point on a continuous path with different stops along the way. And right. the way that we actually see it is more of a journey with many different paths that someone may choose to take. Some may choose to um, to change their name and pronouns and their clothing and hairstyles, but not want any medical interventions or surgical interventions. Some people may want hormone blockers to, block the hormones that their body is naturally producing so that their their body doesn't change in a way that doesn't align with their gender identity. Some people may want to take hormones to change their outward um, se- secondary sex characteristics. Some people may want surgeries. Some people want hormones and don't want surgery or other way around. So there, there really is no one size fit all um, path. And we also recognize that that someone may go down a path and decide to change directions at some point. And I always explain to families that anytime we start any medications or any interventions, we follow our patients really closely. Um, we have visits, follow-up visits, every three to four months. And during those visits, if we've started any medications, we, we check in about how they're feeling in the medication and um, if, th- if they're experiencing any changes to their body, for example, with, um, if, they're, if they've started hormones. And if they're happy with those changes, if they if those changes feel affirming to them, with while recognizing that there's always a possibility that someone may start a medication and decide that they want to change course, and it's always an option an option to stop hormones or a different medication and um, change the the course that we that we go down and the, and, and the pathway that they take. Um, so that's what I try to explain to families that there is no kind of given that thing that some specific thing that they're signing up for just by coming to our clinic um, and that we see our role as helping them understand what all of the different options are so that the young person can can choose along with their family which are the options that best align with who they are. Okay so it sounds like
1: What your team is about is trying to figure out, like, really what makes the most sense for each kid and each person, and not prescribing a particular, like, one size fits all model. Right. Yeah. Makes yeah. Because in- you know the- everybody's
0: different. <laughs> right. Yeah, and the individualized approach is is the, is really important to us. Um, something that we really value, and and really um empowering the youth, and to. We listen to them we want to hear their voices i want to hear what who they are and what's going to help them present in the world the way they see themselves
1: yeah <clears throat> so i was gonna say i was gonna ask have you ever gotten pushback but i um realized that that is a silly question because the better question is how do you respond when parents are not ready for this and kiddos are
0: yeah, that actually comes up all the time. All the time, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think that it's probably the story for most families at some point um, when a young person is telling their family, this is who I am, this is really important to me, and the family um, goes through a process of understanding what that means and listening to their child and gathering information and... Meet- Connecting with other resources, so that can, that process, what I've come to learn, and especially through my close work with our team social worker and psychologist, is just understanding what that process could look like and how to help families when they're at those different stages. Um, and and like I said, I we really do rely a lot on those initial intakes because that's where the conversation is starting to happen, where a social worker can ask can kind of assess what the psychosocial dynamics are with the family and figure out if there are particular resources that would help them to start to have these conversations at home. I think a lot mm-hmm. of it is opening up a space, figuring out how to open up a space for kids to be able to communicate with their caregivers and their, their parents um, and vice versa. Um Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different ways to do that, and my piece. One of the things that I talk about a lot with families, I think one one thing that is is important for them to hear is that, again, there's there's no there are no expectations. We have no expectations that their young person is going to go on go down any particular path, that we're there to support them, and that the other piece that I think is important to know is that if the the this child's path includes hormones, um, we we prescribe hormones in a, in a way that mimics puberty as closely as we can. So we start Mm -hmm. at a low dose and we gradually increase the dose over the course of a couple of years. And with that, changes happen very slowly and gradually. Um, And so that, that can, it's not, I think it can, it can be reassuring that with the changes happen gradually, the, the young person is able to Identify, yes, this is feeling good to me um, or, you know, this actually doesn't feel right to me and change course before there's, you know, big changes that have already happened. Um, It doesn't happen very often at all that someone, a patient of ours has decided to stop hormones. But sometimes we have patients who experience changes to their body from hormones and um, feel like I've gotten the changes that feel like the fit with who I am. And I don't necessarily feel like I need to continue the hormones because I feel really good in my body with the changes that I've already had so far. So I think another um, piece that I want I, I want families to understand when I meet with them is that if a child decides to stop hormones, that that's perfectly fine and may actually be support their that child's identity.
1: Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean oh I've changed my mind about who I am. But right. rather, I feel like I'm nailing who I am right now, right, yeah, exactly, um, so when a family comes in and they're so let's give you a hypothetical because those are always fun um we're past the age of um like the blockers ages, I would mm-hmm. guess. Uh, but so we're like more closer, like 14, 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and a kiddo is saying, yeah, I really wanna start hormones. What are some things that, and we'll say for the sake of this particular conversation that it's an AFAB individual, so assigned female at birth, and um, looking for a more masculine presentation or expression. Um So what are some things that you would want to talk with the family about and things that you would want to make sure that they're considering and discussing at home?
0: Yeah. Um, So one of the things that I do first is to try to identify what the young person's goals are, what they're... Hoping to achieve, many times when they come to see me, they've done a lot of research on their own, oh, yeah. um, and can actually teach me a lot of things. Um, and so I ask them where where they've gotten information from. A lot of times it's places online. Sometimes it's support groups. Sometimes it's friends who have started hormones. And then I ask, are there what are the particular things about what you've learned about testosterone, um, for example, that you're looking forward to that, that fit with who you are. And, um, it's interesting to hear what, how they verbalize what they see, how they see testosterone as, as, as being important to who they are and part of their journey. Um, and then when we talk about, um, any medical conditions that we would be, you know, want to be taking into consideration when starting hormones, really there's not a lot. One of the things that it's, that I emphasize is that when we start hormones or testosterone, as I mentioned, we start at a low dose, and then when we gradually increase that dose and then we arrive at a maintenance dose, that achieves testosterone levels in the blood that would mimic what someone would be naturally be, be producing at that age. So, And we don't exceed that, so for that reason, we really don't see a lot of negative health Consequences, or even mm-hmm. um, mood, or psychological consequences, because it's really just replacing what the body would naturally be producing if they if they were producing testosterone. And we've been prescribing testosterone in this way as pediatric endocrinologists for many many years for people who don't make enough tes- or of their own testosterone. So we have a lot of experience in understanding how it works. Um, yeah. And so. Some of the medical conditions that we think about in terms of family history are are early heart disease, like heart attacks at a young age, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, primarily because testosterone can raise the risk of those health conditions. But because those health health conditions are largely genetic, um, what we say is that testosterone will raise the risk of those health conditions to that of any testosterone-producing person in the family. And Ah. so... We always say, you know, if there is a strong family history of early heart disease, then what that means is not you're not eligible for testosterone or it's not going to be safe for you. But we need to make sure that we're taking good care of your heart as you're getting older and and screening for cholesterol and things like that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense.
1: Um, One of the things that I talk to kids about a lot is, um, guess what? Diet and exercise become even more important for you. (laughs) right like everybody oh my god right but they're like yeah it's health it's just important for everyone exactly um so that makes perfect sense that it wouldn't necessarily put place them at more at risk than say like a cisgender uh man in their family exactly yeah um what about um reproduction cuz this is one that comes up a lot how do you talk with families about um thinking about reproduction and family planning at such a young age.
0: Yeah, it's, this is probably one of the most challenging areas, um, because I recognize that it's, it's not something that a lot of kids are thinking about or really have ideas about what they want in the future. And I've even had patients talk about how unfair it is that they have to be thinking about this right now when they're making decisions about starting hormones and such. Um, And so I think that's one of the things that I find it to be really valuable for experienced therapists to be able to, and, and parents to be able to, to have these conversations with their kids and in the context of recognizing that there may be some sadness associated with decisions that they have to make. And so it really depends on the type of treatment that they're looking for. So if it is an AFAB or sign female at birth, teenager who went through puberty and is now starting testosterone what my counseling is is well for everybody I always say we recognize that there are many different ways of building a family and we don't have any assumptions that you will want to have biological children but we feel that it's really important that you have all the information when you're making decisions and um, what we're finding with more and more people who have been on testosterone often for many years and in working closely with our fertility specialists at OHSU, we're finding that, um, even someone who's been on testosterone for many years, if they stop the testosterone, they almost always, or they often, or almost always resumes having cycles and mm-hmm. then they can achieve a pregnancy. Um, they would have to stay off testosterone during the, well, while during conception and during the pregnancy, um. Or they can have their eggs for someone, they can use their eggs for someone else to carry a pregnancy. So testosterone, while we know does have, can change the ovaries, it does not appear to be as harmful to fertility um, as we previously thought. Um, so that's, that's the question, that's the answer I usually give about testosterone. Um, estrogen and hormone blockers are a little bit different. I just want to emphasize that hormone blockers themselves, or the puberty blockers, don't cause any long-term um, negative effects to fertility. Um, but the tr- the tricky part is that if they're start started in what we call Tanner or two or the first stage of puberty or early on in puberty, the ovaries or the testicles aren't haven't had the opportunity to develop to the point where they're able to make eggs or sperm. Right. So. If you're going to start the puberty blockers at Tanner 2, there really isn't a way to preserve fertility at that point yet. This is an area that is really active in research right now, but at this point, we still don't have a way of preserving fertility for someone who hasn't gone, what we think, at least halfway through puberty. Most of the time with with that comes other body changes that don't align with their gender identity. So as they're making decisions about starting the hormone blockers, we talk about the fact that Um, If it comes to the point where they're wanting to start hormones, then their ovaries or their testicles just won't ever get to the point of of that, of being mature enough to be able to preserve fertility. Um, And then with estrogen, for those who um, usually assign male at birth patients who want to start estrogen, we know that estrogen does have um, a pretty significant effect on testicles ability to make sperm. But we don't have a way of saying for every single person your fertility isn't affected until you're on such and such dose or for this many years. It really varies from person to person. So I always tell my patients that even if you've been on um, estrogen for many years, if later on in your life you're curious about whether you um, are able to have biological children, it's never too late to ask the question. Um, There's a lot of Um, really great specialists, fertility specialists that can help to work with that individual or with a couple to talk about what the different possibilities could be and what that might look like. So would
1: you encourage families to meet with a fertility specialist prior to starting anything or if they're concerned about it? um, Or do you think that that's a better conversation to have when they're getting ready to start families?
0: I think it can be both or neither. Mm. Uh-huh. Um <laughs> or one or the other. I think that I mean, I see my my job as being um having enough information that I can give them to help them make a decision about whether they think a conversation with a fertility specialist would be useful for them at that point. Um, we at OHSU we had been prior to COVID having in person um patient education sessions quarterly with our fertility specialists. Mm -hmm. And it was a really great opportunity for individuals or couples or families to come in. I had some um, parents and their teens come in together to meet with um, or to to listen to the general information about fertility and fertility preservation and reproductive options from one of the specialists um, instead of, you know, basically having almost like a one-on-one, because they're usually pretty small groups and a place to ask questions. And we're hoping to get those either online or back in person as soon as possible. But we do have a lot of written information for families. And um, and I talk about what the different options would be and what the different time points would look like for meeting with a fertility specialist. Um, and I would say that those who are most often pursuing this before any medical interventions from me, like hormones, are those um youth who are signed male at birth, who have gone through most most puberty, um, you know, almost completed puberty, and are wanting to start hormone blockers or and or estrogen, but the time to do that would be – the time to do fertility or sperm preservation would be prior to starting any of those interventions. So we'll okay. often refer them to our fertility specialists to talk about what that would look like for um, sperm preservation. And then if they want to pursue that, then they they can move forward with it.
1: Got it. Okay. Um, let's shift a little bit to talk about just – what hormones do to our bodies. Um, And when a kid goes into puberty and let's say they're a male identified kid, um, who's uh, AFAB, um, again, uh, I don't know why I keep going with the the boys, but yeah. (laughs) Um, Let's talk just a little bit about um, what testosterone actually does. Because um, I know that there's a lot of information about there that is incorrect. Um, and so I think it would be really helpful for parents in particular to hear from um, someone like you who knows all the things to help them understand, like, my kid says they want testosterone. What does that even mean for them?
0: Yeah, th- that that's a great question. Um, and there's a lot of like you said a lot of information and resources out there a lot of a lot of really great resources, but a lot of incorrect information. I think one of the things that's um a misconception that's op- that's often um, carried forward or carried around is that um, testosterone can cause you know roid rage and um, mm-hmm. all these these scary health conditions that we hear about from certain like bodybuilders who take testosterone and so I try to emphasize from the very beginning again we're just we are prescribing in the amounts that the body would naturally be producing um, and because we don't go above that is that's why we don't see a lot of these negative con- consequences but um, what happens when a test when a hormone is in the body and I love talking about hormones because they're <laughs> they're what I live and breathe um, there's what I often explain to the youth is that a hormone um, is kind of like a messenger that's that is secreted by a gland or taken um, like by pills or patch or shot. And, but in order for it to work, it has to have a receptor. Um, so the receptor catches the hormone and then that's what causes all the messaging in the cells to cause the body changes to happen. So okay. that's part of the reason why it takes some time for the changes to happen and often way slower than the youth are hoping for and anticipating these changes Uh are happening so slowly um, is because the body has to build up more receptors. And that's the interesting thing that our bodies do is that when there's more hormones around, then it starts to build and develop more receptors to catch the hormones. Um, And so that's the reason why the changes happen slowly and they happen at different time points. So one of the things that I always um, spend a lot of time on with youth and families is the timeline of typical body changes um, that happen with hormones. So for for example, with testosterone, the earliest change that happens is an increase in skin oiliness and acne for most people. And the Mm -hmm. acne can be Pretty significant for some. It's usually, in my experience, people who have struggled with acne in the past, but it does get better over time. And, you know, there's lots of topical things that we can and oral things that we can do to help with the acne if it becomes really significant. Um, It also, people often use this term called fat redistribution about testosterone. And I think that can be kind of confusing because testosterone itself doesn't really cause fat to move from one part of the body to another, but in fact, Mm -hmm. what it actually does is to build out the muscles um, and that can give the the appearance of a broader chest and shoulders so that can minimize the hips and thighs area. So that's kind of what um, that's referring to, the fat redistribution. That's one of the earlier changes that happens as well. Um, Testosterone can also uh, work to suppress cycles um, or Mm -hmm. periods um, by... Somewhat turning down the hormones coming from the brain that tell the, the ovaries to make estrogen, but it does take some time for the cycles to become suppressed. So, if a youth is really interested in in wanting their cycles suppressed right away, there are other things that medicines that we can use um, that are mostly that are progesterone based um, that don't cause any physical changes to the body, but can suppress cycles. Um there's also um growth of the clitoris that happens with with testosterone. Um sometimes kids refer to that that as bottom growth or lower growth. Mm-hmm. Um and we've been getting a lot of questions from youth lately about um how much growth this really is and um if it's painful. A lot of youth are are saying that they're hearing from other sources that it causes a lot of pain. And mm-hmm. that is not what we expect or actually experience with our patients. Um, I think the growth of the clitoris is really slow and gradual and fairly minimal. Um, But it can differ from person to person. And we don't hear that it causes any pain. Um, Some people, depending on the kind of Undergarments they're wearing, or whether they're using a packer in their pants to give the appearance of a of a penis, um, that can sometimes rub against the area, and that can cause some discomfort. So we help youth, um, you know, navigate that if that comes up. But just the growth of the area does not cause pain. Um, and then what I tell Uh, youth is that the, the later changes that happen are the voice deepening and then the facial and body hair. Um, and those changes can be really slow and subtle. So it may be not that they don't notice any change by six months. Um, and especially because they hear their voice every day, but then if they talk to somebody that hasn't talked to them in a while, they may notice that their voice has deepened. So we sometimes, um, recommend to youth that they keep like a video journal or a voice uh, recording over time so that they can actually hear for themselves the changes that are happening over time. Um, if that's something that they're looking forward to. And then the facial hair is the kind of the last thing that continues on for many years, even well beyond when we reach our, our maintenance dose of testosterone.
1: Awesome. Okay. So that's what we can expect to have happen. Um, in slow progression um, for testosterone, what about with estrogen?
0: With estrogen, it's similar. Um, there aren't as many body changes that happen. Um, the main one is breast development, but again, that is also very gradual um, And so most of my patients don't really notice much of a much breast development in the first three months. Um, there may be little breast buds that that develop. It's not uncommon for them to be tendered. Um, or painful. Um, that gets better over time. And then the breast development continues on for many years. So I would say average three to five years before breast development is complete for a, a teenager who's, who's starting estrogen, for example. Um, the other things that estrogen does is some people report that it makes their skin softer. Um, and and then the other thing is that if it's a someone who's assigned male at birth, they um, Will often have less erections or less spontaneous erections with estrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that is often for our patients a desired effect. If they're also on hormone blockers, then they they wouldn't really be having a lot of erections already. Um, and then the other piece is is just um, again focusing on the for for the the effect on the testicles and and fertility future fertility.
1: Okay, so. If someone were to go on hormones for a while and then, say, get achieved desired therapeutic effect um, and then decide that they don't want to take hormones anymore, tell me about what sticks around and what changes back.
0: That's a great question. Okay. Yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about that. So um, for someone who's taking testosterone, the things that would go away, we often cause the, call these um, changes um, reversible, are the mm-hmm. changes to the skin, the acne, the skin oiliness, and kind of the, the muscle changes and body fat distribution that often does go away. The things that don't go away are any voice changes that happen, growth of the clitoris, h- hair and body growth. Um, because even if someone has, decides that they want to stop testosterone, if those hair follicles um, on their face or body have been stimulated by testosterone already, then any amount of testosterone in the body, which we all naturally produce some amount of testosterone, can stimulate those hair follicles. So um, those those are the changes that, that won't um, completely go away. Now, if somebody has this has stimulated the hair follicles on their face, um, and then they stop testosterone; they won't be getting as much facial hair growth um, as they would if they were continuing on testosterone. And I I think so, I mentioned that some some people do take testosterone for a period of time and achieve a certain amount mm-hmm. of body changes that they like, and then and then decide that they don't want to take it anymore. In terms of S, est- oh, ab- oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, what about
1: baldness?
0: Um, so that's a good question. It is really hard to predict. So we know that testosterone can contribute to scalp hair loss. Um, but I, again, I think a lot of it is genes that you inherit from your mm-hmm. parent, you know, from your parents or your families. Um, and it really varies in terms of what type of hair loss and when that's going to happen, um, and there are a few treatment options for trying to um, not prevent, but trying to help some of that hair grow back. It's there aren't there aren't great. There aren't great treatment options for um, any baldness or hair loss that happens with testosterone, but there are some things that, that can be tried. And, and I, I really don't see a whole lot of it in my teenage patients. So it's it's something that I think that adult um, doctors or doctors of adults um, encounter more often than I do and have more okay. experience with.
1: Okay. So, um, all right, I was just checking on that, but want to come back to the what is permanent and not permanent with estrogen.
0: So with estrogen, um, the permanent changes will be the breast development, um, and and then again, any effects that have happened to the testicles' um, ability to make sperm. So again, it's hard to predict. You can't really that's something you can't really see, but um, mm-hmm. it's just something that, that's a that's a possibility. Most of the other changes that happen with estrogen, like the skin changes and things like that, um, those go away if someone stops to estrogen. Okay.
1: Um, the I want to be mindful of our time, too, because um, it's almost noon. Um, so I want to see, is there anything else we really want to make sure gets into this particular episode? We can always do more um, in the future. Karen and I were like, we're never going to – there's just so much to cover.
0: So much. I know. I th- I think one other thing is incorporating – like, I think a lot of times families are at, are asking, is it better to just wait till they're 18?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let me just ask that question and then you can speak to it. Okay. Um, so one of the biggest things that I hear from families is um, about timing. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes families um, or parents will have this conception of, like, you can do whatever you want once you're 18, but before you're 18, um, I get to say. So... How do you navigate the timing of it with families, especially if they've got that sort of, let's just wait. It's better to wait. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I always – want to know from families when they, when they say that, um, because I, I do want to understand what's behind it. A lot of times it's fear about regret and that the, that their teen's going to change their mind, um, or mm-hmm. not be happy with, 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 with having started hormones. Um, and I, I we get that, and so we spend a lot of time just kind of normalizing those feelings that the parents may have, and those fears, and then also correcting any misconceptions that they may have. One of the things that they often are not really aware of is the is the fact that the the changes do happen so slowly, and we do give the mm. opportunity for kids to say like, okay, I. I i love this or no i don't want to go down this path anymore i want to change directions um but mm-hmm. i i think that what we try to emphasize to parents and families is that um a young person having the opp- opportunity to be able to to have access to these interventions or be able to quote transition at a young and during their teen years and, and while they're still living at home for example or in iron hi- high school actually makes them more likely to be better able to integrate into society because their identity and expression and their legal documents could be in alignment before they are launched into adulthood. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of anxiety about going in public without these areas in alignment. So being able to practice their social skills and integration as youth, um, as as they're affirmed, means that they'll be they'll have a stronger foundation for being able to integrate into society. And one of the things that our social worker often tells families is that um when young people are are trying to n- navigate this whole process in getting access to care that takes a lot of energy um a lot of energy to to decide how am i going to tell my parents and where am i going to go and researching things online and so when they have the opportunity to to start moving forward with the things that align with who they are that frees up so much energy that they can then dedicate to all the other things that go into being a teen school yeah. and making plans for college and building relationships in the skin in their skin that that really feels authentic to them um mm-hmm. and so what we often tell parents is that if a if a person who's younger than eighteen is is asking their parents to support them on this, it's because it's we see it as an invitation for to ask the parents to. Um, to join them, that they want to do this together with them, they don't want to turn eighteen, move out, and then have to navigate this alone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Carrie. I appreciate your time and your expertise for sure, and I'd love to have you back to continue to talk about this as the questions will continue to roll in from families, I'm sure. Um, but uh, again, thank you just so much. appreciate of
0: course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to to talk again.
1: So there you have it. You're the experts now. Congratulations. Just kidding, obviously. As you took in that conversation, I'm imagining that there are parts of you reacting in different ways. Perhaps there are curious parts who are interested in learning more. Maybe there are parts that are anxious or wanting to hit stop on the podcast because it felt like too much. Whatever your emotional response was to it, know that it's an okay response. I encourage you to be curious about it. Journal on it. Come up with any questions that we didn't answer and send them to camp at wildheartsociety.org. I'll answer them directly, as well as in the next episode. After listening to Dr. Selva's talk, a mom reached out to me and said, You almost got all the questions. My non binary 14 year old is struggling with dysphoria related to menstruation and chest dysphoria. They've been menstruating for two years and are interested in blockers since the idea of testosterone doesn't align with their gender identity. Would blockers work for those issues? I relayed the question to Dr. Selva, who told me that this non-binary person is not a good candidate for blockers because they would experience menopausal symptoms and be miserable. She also said that the best path forward was to continue with the menstruation management medication that they're on, and then wait to be old enough for top surgery, the kind of answer every kid loves to hear. Wait it out and keep working with your therapist. Thanks so much for joining us and for all the hard work you're doing for yourselves, your families, and your kids. I'm so grateful for all that you do. Thanks so much to Dr. Connolly and her team for all the work they're doing, have done, and will continue to do to support gender expansive youth in the future. They're truly outstanding and life saving. All of us here at Camp Wildheart, listeners, counselors, are here to support you. There are a lot of ways to reach out to us. We're on the Facebook and the Instagram as Wild Heart Society. If you've got a question you want us to answer or a story you want to share about a beautiful moment with your own affirming family, don't hesitate to email us at camp at wildheartsociety.org. If you're in need of a therapist and looking for someone to walk with you through this journey, please check out wildheartsociety.org. Thanks again for finding the courage to show up. I appreciate you. Be sure to subscribe for free to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes and give us a rating. Rating the podcast helps other people find us, and we want to make sure that anyone who needs one knows there's a bunk for them at Camp Wildheart. Take care, y'all.